chapter four, connection. It's now easier than it's ever been to contact another human being. We can fly to the other side of the world in a day. We can speak to and see people anywhere and at any time and instantly send messages via a variety of different methods. And yet it seems that we're more disconnected from each other than ever. We live in isolation. Single person households are on the rise now. We live next door to, opposite from, above and below people that we don't know. Loneliness, which is also reported to be on the rise, increases the release of stress hormones and the likelihood of several life-threatening illnesses. Addictions to everything from Class A drugs to gambling, shopping and working are rife as we struggle to fill the gap left by the lack of the most fundamental of human needs. We need connection to other human beings more than anything else, which might sound a little dramatic, but our feeling of connection and safety is the platform on which we build our identity, and we can't exist without an identity. It is, for us, quite literally, a fate worse than death, and we seek that safe connection with another human being from the moment we're born. We're too small and dependent then to make it on our own, we need someone to rely on, someone who can provide that security and attachment which, for humans, is needed for a good 16 to 20 years or longer before we're ready to go it alone. But before we look at childhood experiences and what that can mean for us as adults, I want to make something really clear. The purpose of this is to bring a little clarity to how we grow up to have the beliefs that we hold about ourselves and the world that we're living. It's not in any way a criticism of us as parents or the parenting we received. We're all doing the best we can with what is at best imperfect information. We raise our children based on our own experiences and beliefs and what our own parents taught us and they did exactly the same as did their parents and so on and so on right back to the dawn of time. We make adjustments as we go and do what we hope and believe is the best for our families and sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. Sometimes the advice that we get is good and sometimes it isn't. We're just working with what we have. So let's look at first connections. A new baby needs closeness, a skin to skin connection at first and then steadily developing a tolerance for being further and further away growing over the years until the baby grows into a fully developed, independent adult. The success of this process can be seen in the way that we interact in adult relationships and in those with our own children. Most of us do have what could be called a good enough attachment to those who cared for us, and even then the effect of early insecurities can be seen. People who are very clingy or needy in a relationship or people who avoid getting close to others or leap from one disastrous relationship to another disastrous relationship, do so in part of how the early attachment process was for them. In theory, the process of attachment is straightforward. You keep your babies close and attend to them. Over time, they'll investigate their world more and more and rely less and less on you being close at hand. You see it happening over a much shorter time scale with animals. It's the natural way of things as offspring venture further into the world and come back to base when they need reassurance that all is well. The problem for us is 
that the rules surrounding how we should look after our children, combined with the demands of our changing lifestyles, have made this process more difficult and, in some cases, all but dismissed its value entirely. It isn't simply a matter of ensuring that a child is fed and clean and warm. They can have all these things and yet struggle to thrive. Many of us have seen news images of children rocking by themselves in overcrowded orphanages in war-torn countries. They don't rock from a lack of food. They rock from a lack of contact and interaction. And although this is an extreme example of the effects of lack of connection, it's just one end of the scale when we look at how vital human connection is to our development and well-being. Changes in advice and guidance around the care of children has impacted our experience both of having and being a baby to a greater or lesser degree depending on where and when you were born. Mothers have, in the past, been encouraged to let their children cry to exercise their lungs as if breathing in and out isn't exercise enough for your lungs. Strict feeding regimes allowing babies to cry out, resisting the urge to pick your baby up when they cry so as not to make them needy or clingy. These are just a few of the counterintuitive rules that impact on how safe a small child feels, and these, of course, don't even touch on the impact of any neglect or ill-treatment occurring in struggling families. When we see documentaries about remote tribes whose way of life has been relatively untouched by the industrial and post-industrial world, we see babies who can't yet walk, and sometimes older children who can, being carried in slings and wraps close to and touching whoever's carrying them. The most interesting thing about watching these documentaries is that you seldom hear a baby cry. This isn't to say that we should keep our children close to us permanently. The steady increase over time and distance between the child and the parent is important in this initial close connection. And keeping them too close for too long can set them up for difficulties later on in life too. So it's a balance about time being close and time being separate. An additional problem for us these days is that parents are often under financial or career pressure to get back to work relatively quickly after a new baby arrives. Knowing that this early connection is so important means that we can be conscious of focusing more on what's important when we're at home, but sadly, many people also feel the pressure to maintain the image of a perfectly ordered house and active social life too. This makes me think of a poem by Ruth Hulbert Hamilton that my aunt sent to me when my son was very small. The scrubbing and cleaning can wait till tomorrow, but children grow up as I've learnt to my sorrow. So quiet down, cobwebs, and dust go to sleep. I'm rocking my baby, and babies don't keep. Then there are family connections. So when I talk about family and parents here, I'm referring to the people who you were with when you were growing up whether they were biologically related to you or not. What we need is the same, regardless of our social circumstances. And once we've passed through that early attachment stage, the next thing many of us have to deal with is siblings and the competing demands of other people in our family group. Because having a secure first connection with our parents is unfortunately not enough to maintain the feeling of safety and acceptance through the rest of our childhood. As other people come into the mix and we find that we're competing for that scarcest of resources, attention. The attention of our parents is essential in keeping us safe and stable as we develop our identity. How we get that attention and what sort of attention it is also plays a big part in establishing our behaviour patterns. 
and how we manage the relationships with others outside of our family. In a similar way to that first connection, not getting enough attention or recognition in our family is like not existing at all and we will do whatever we need to do to get it. Positive attention is of course the best kind to get but if that isn't available we'll get any kind of attention we can. Being shouted at is better than being ignored and a slap is better than no physical contact at all. The bottom line is that people who seek attention do it quite simply because they need attention. A few years ago now I saw a really clear example of this playing out by the swimming pool where we were staying. Um, There was a family which was mum and dad, um, an elder boy called James, a daughter called Amy who was the middle child and a toddler maybe about 18 months old called Oliver. Now Oliver was getting all the attention of mum and dad because he was the baby and Amy Um, being the only girl, was also getting a reasonable amount of attention. But James, as the elder boy, was being expected to be very self-sufficient and clearly James still needed the attention of his parents. So what he was doing, he was tormenting his sister until she got upset and then his dad would tell him to come to him to, to tell him off. So while he was getting told off, what he had then was eye-to-eye contact with his dad who very calmly but quite firmly stood him in front of him and looked him straight in the face and told him what behaviour he was expecting of him so for that moment he got that attention and the tormenting of his sister would die down until he needed some more attention and then he'd start the process again and it's not just the addition of new family members that can create this pattern if parents aren't aware of how that older part of our brains translates the lack of attention as being something that threatens us any competing interest can have the same effect work television social media anything that takes a significant amount of your parents attention away especially at times when the child is looking to interact with the parent can set up this any attention will do strategy. And an example of this that I saw was a couple who'd brought their children for a meal in a local pub close to where I live. The family were all very smartly dressed and mum and dad sat next to each other with the children, a boy and girl sitting across the table. And as soon as they sat down, the parents produced two tablets, um, each with their own little headsets and placed one tablet in front of each child. And the children sat there with their tablets propped up in front of them and their headsets on whilst mum and dad chatted with each other. Even when the food arrived, the tablets and headsets stayed in place. Now, the little boy tried to speak to his parents a couple of times and the response was to tell him to watch his video and they straightened his headset and back over his ears and put his tablet back in front of him. After a couple of attempts to interact with his parents, the boy started to get upset. He pushed his plate away toppling the tablet, nearly knocked over his dad's glass. Both parents instantly paid attention to him until he settled down and then the headset was back on. They resumed their conversation and then this pattern happened again another couple of times over the course of the meal. Over time, you can see how this pattern of behaviour can lead somebody into a situation where they get labelled as disruptive um, because what they've learned is if they want attention, 
that's what they need to do to get it. And this is another important aspect about the attention we receive as a child influencing our sense of identity and who we think we are, is our tendency to describe someone as being the behaviour that they're currently doing. We're very quick to generalise our experience, as we've talked about before, and that goes along with somebody else's behaviour. So once we've experienced a similar behaviour a few times, and it does only take a few, our mind does what it does with all other experiences and it groups them together with other similar experiences and gives them a name. So we know how to recognise it. Knowing that this is a chair, this is a zebra and so on, just saves time next time. We know what to expect and what to do the next time we encounter the same thing and we do this with people too. You are a clever girl. He is very rude. She is very naughty and so on. As our reality is constructed over time, we look for evidence that a belief is correct until it becomes real to us. We know it so well that we put it into our unconscious mind and let the programme run on autopilot. Here's an example of how easily this can happen. A woman has two children a couple of years apart from each other. The first child seems a little quiet and the mother begins to think that that child may be shy or lacking in confidence. So she focuses on encouraging and coaxing the child to be more adventurous. When the second child arrives, the mother thinks that possibly this child is more confident. And so she relaxes a little more around the second child in the belief that they will just progress nicely, propelled by the greater confidence that she thinks the second child was born with. The first child notices that the mother is intervening in what they're doing to encourage them to do more and that the mother is not saying the same things to their sibling. And they interpret this coaxing as criticism. They begin to doubt their abilities and they start to lack confidence, confirming the mother's belief, and so she intervenes some more. The second child sees the first child getting attention from the mother that they don't seem to get, and tries harder and harder at whatever they do to get some of the attention. The mother sees the second child achieving and being proactive and this confirms her belief that the second child is indeed more confident and capable of getting on with things without intervention. The mother's belief that she has a confident child and a child who lacks confidence is made real for all three of them. The first child feels criticised, the second child feels ignored. Both children believe that they are not good enough. It happens all very easily because of how our minds prefer to work. Although I doubt we can avoid generalising altogether, it's another area where being conscious of the labels that we apply and the behaviours we engage in around other people is the first step to making better choices as we become more aware of the potential impact that our labels and behaviours can have. There are good girls and good boys who have grown up being good and ultimately resenting the expectation but struggling to behave in any other way. There are bad girls and bad boys who as adults will repeat, I'm not really bad, you know, and struggle to stay out of trouble because that's how they got their attention. Many of us grow up feeling not good enough and not really knowing why. Sadly, so far, we've not been great at unpicking and changing old beliefs and patterns of behaviour because of the yes but response. The yes but response 
is what you quite often get from people when the subject of childhood experiences influencing adult behaviour and emotions comes up and it goes something like this. Yes, but it was a long time ago. Yes, but they're grown up now, they should know better. Yes, but it wasn't that bad, get over it. It's the belief that the thinking of the top drawer and the in-tray are enough to sort out anything and all we need to do is apply a bit of logic and the job's done. Sadly, not the case. Rationalising by itself won't change anything. It will only, perhaps, explain it a little bit better. We need to install a new pattern and a new belief in the middle drawer to replace the old one. And while there are change techniques you can do with the help of a coach, there's a lot you can start to do to build on that for yourself. The comparison crisis. We naturally compare ourselves to the people around us. It's part of our tribal or pack nature and how we used to make sure we were part of the group. We'd look around and check that we were sufficiently like the people around us and either modify something about our appearance or behaviour to be more like the group or run for it because if this was not our pack, we were in big trouble. This process has been going on for as long as we've lived in groups and we still do it, mainly unconsciously, now. The way we dress, talk and move, what we believe is acceptable and what isn't will be within the accepted boundary of the group that we identify with. Even when teenagers rebel against the older generation and strive to be different, they generally do this by being the same as a different group from their family rather than just being different. It's all part of the need to belong and knowing who we are. Even those who pride themselves on being different or unique will still make comparisons but adjust away from similarity rather than towards it because their identity is in being non-conformist. Often people resist the idea that they're making themselves like the group because we all like to think that we're individuals and, and we are just usually within a range of appearance and behaviour that's acceptable to our tribe whatever that may be. Outside of that range, we start to get really uncomfortable. I remember a few years back, BBC Two ran a series called Tribal Wives, where women from the UK went to live for a month with a remote tribe and experienced what it was like for the women in that culture. One woman discovered that in the rules of the tribe she was living with, it was not acceptable for women to show their thighs, but totally normal for them to go bare-breasted. And she struggled with this because, to her... Wearing shorts was perfectly normal, going topless wasn't, just wasn't okay. So entrenched was the rule about not going topless that she found it impossible to fit in with the other women in that way. And fitting in and belonging is so important to us that as a species we've evolved in a way that means we divide the human population into two distinct groups. There is us and there's them. Anyone who is one of them is not of our tribe, not like us, and even a lesser being compared to one of the us. Old tribal names demonstrate this really well, and many translate as the people, true people, the real people, people of this land, and our people. Anyone outside the tribe is then not true people, not our people, and not of this land. The us or them part of our connection programme runs very quickly on encountering new people and how we classify the new person or people 
will determine how we behave towards them and respond to their behaviour. We'll create a different meaning around any event involving one of them than we would if it was one of us. We will justify and make allowances for us and we will judge and accuse and ridicule them. You can see then how this becomes a problem for us when our tribal boundaries become blurred or expand into larger tribes with a looser definition. Our tribal boundaries are now more geographic than cultural or religious as used to be the case so how does our brain decide who is us and who is them? Complicate this again by belonging to more than one tribe, the geographic tribe, and then one or more tribes within that tribe based on beliefs, preferences, interests or lifestyle. Add to this more complication, with some of our tribes being virtual, existing only on social media and the internet, it's no wonder that people don't know whether they belong or whether they're just fitting in. It's not that we consciously want to divide the world into us and them. It's just that that is what the comparison programme in the bottom drawer of our mind will run, based on information from the middle drawer. In theory, then, the whole process of comparison is to help us reconfirm that we are part of something, part of a group, belong to a tribe and know what the rules are. This sounds okay, and it was okay, when our horizons were not as broad as they've become in recent years, and the people we compared ourselves with were real, within reach, and in the community that we belonged to. This is no longer always the case, as the rise of the social media celebrity, airbrushed images, and rampant consumerism has left us comparing ourselves against ideals that are not only unattainable, but in many cases, just not physically possible. The advertising industry tells us that their product is just what we need to make us fitter, richer, slimmer, better looking, cooler, more, whatever it is we were told we needed to be to be acceptable to the tribes we're trying to associate with. And we buy it. It's not just that we're fed the message that we can do, have or be anything we want to. The message is that we must do, have and be everything. And if we're not constantly striving to be bigger, better, shinier in every respect of our lives, then we're just not good enough and we don't belong. We should, the message is, be setting ourselves goals to have more and more of everything. Now, it's great to have goals, to want to achieve or create something, to take pleasure and pride in working towards and reaching whatever the goal may be. But when the goal is to have the latest and best of everything... The problem is that we never really get to experience the joy and satisfaction of getting there because as soon as we do, the goal moves on to the next thing that we seemingly can't live without. So we're endlessly dieting, covering our skin in chemicals, getting our faces numbed and pumped up because we don't look enough like an image that actually wasn't really real in the first place. The endless churn of upgrades and the next must-haves keeps people in a constant state of not good enough and our natural tendency to compare ourselves with other people leaves many of us feeling less like we belong and pushing us to try harder and harder to fit in. Less of us and more of a them. This crisis of comparison has contributed to the highest number of eating disorders, mental health issues and addictions so far in our history as we've become the most obese, surgically enhanced, 
debt-burdened population to inhabit the planet to date. And all this because we fill the connection gap with whatever makes us feel better for a while. It sounds a little depressing though, and it needn't be. We're doing a lot of this on autopilot, unconsciously buying into concepts without getting the full filing cabinet involved. Letting the thinking of the middle and bottom drawer run our behaviour without getting the top drawer to think about it or even letting it into the conscious thought processes that go on in the in-tray. So to recover some of the lost connection that we so badly need, we need to get all three drawers of our mind involved in the process. First, to bring the importance of connection into our conscious awareness and then to use that awareness to build some new habits and new rules for living. Rationally defining who us is means that we can consciously apply this when we meet new people and by recognising when we've unconsciously classified someone as them, we can overturn that decision and make them part of us. With sufficient repetition, our middle drawer will get to recognise the pattern and add this to the information it has stored for running this programme. Another thing, though, that we're going to need to do this, because reconnecting will take us outside of the place that we're familiar with, is courage. Something to practice. Reconnecting and rewriting the rules. The first part of this reconnecting really couldn't be simpler. And it is just to make eye contact because in our rushed lives, this is something that's quite often fallen by the wayside. We go through the supermarket checkout with our phones stuck to our head and get to the other side without realising that we've never actually looked at the person who's been serving us. So when you're out and about, when you speak to people, just make eye contact. It doesn't have to be a prolonged stare because that can be a little bit weird, but just make eye contact because what that does is it gives our brain a little bit, a little kick of recognition and connection. Rewriting the rules is more of a pen and paper exercise. We learn a lot of the rules when we're growing up about what we should and shouldn't do. And they're those things that you think to yourself and they usually start with, I must or I mustn't do this, I should or I shouldn't, I have to, I need to, or I don't or I can't. Now, some of these are perfectly sensible and you'd want to keep them. Things like don't cross the road without checking for traffic or don't steal. So if you know that you've got rules in your life and you want to keep them, keep them. Some of the rules, though, are not quite so helpful and might prevent you from doing things that you really want to. For example, uh, one of the rules in my family was don't blow your own trumpet or don't show off. You know, don't put yourself forward, which made the idea of starting and promoting my own business something of a challenge, so it's a rule that I've had to change. So you need some paper and a pen, and you're gonna need three columns for this. So in the first column, what are the rules that you're living your life by? What are the things that are just not done, or you just must do? And then the next column, where did that rule come from? Whose voice do you hear when you think about that rule? What would it have meant to have broken the rule and why was it important that you followed it? Then column three, what's the new rule that you're replacing it with? Make sure this is a rule for you. A good test for this is to ask yourself, if I didn't follow this rule, what would that mean about me? If the answer is 
that you're following a rule to make yourself more acceptable to other people, then maybe it's not one that you want to adopt. Chapter 4a is a short guided meditation that you can play independently of all the other chapters in this book. Thank you.